It is normal in our culture to see injury and or the resulting pain as an isolated event, when in fact it is often the accumulation of physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual stress that led to fatigue, self-absorption, and lack of awareness. So when we explore my one, two, three, uh, four approach as it applies to the pain teacher, we'll get deeper into these issues. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. In today's episode, part two of his series on the pain teacher, Paul discusses the four types of responses the ego has to pain, as well as exploring the concepts of instincts and consciousness. Do you identify with any of the people Paul describes? Keep listening to discover Paul's recommendations for those having challenges with pain and healing. Part two, I will cover the four kinds of patients, which are all people in the world, as they relate to being in pain and working with therapists and doctors, so that you can identify to the best of your ability, A, which one of them you might be and how you can grow from that, and B, for those of you that are doctors, therapists, and coaches, uh, I will share tips for helping you better manage each of those four types. I will share tips for those challenged in their approach to healing to inspire efficient healing to gain freedom and meaning from their pain. I will explain and explore instincts. We will look at Carl Jung's four functions of consciousness and how they relate to pain. And then we will finish with an exploration of my I-We-All model of loving and how we create pain by not understanding that we are the source of love for ourselves and our relationships. All right, so now that we've had a nice beginning intro in part one to Lessons from the Pain Teacher, today I'd like to begin our continuation of our journey with the Pain Teacher, discussing healing and therapy which includes surgical interventions, all forms of therapy where there is a doctor or a therapist or even a health coach or life coach involved. Now, I'm not sure, I think it was Bill Walcott that might have taught me this. It's been many years, but once I learned this model, as soon as I learned it, I immediately recognized the truth of it. And there's a lot of deep wisdom in what I'm about to share, and I'm going to share the four types of patients, which are actually four types of people in the world, because people are patients, and patients are people. Just like Lao Tzu says, the government always reflects the people, patients always reflect people, because patients are people. So, If you're not a patient or you haven't been a patient, then maybe you can find yourself in these categories and pick up some beautiful lessons uh, about the pain teacher and hopefully before you have to confront the pain teacher. So with that, I will begin. Unfortunately, even with the best doctors and therapists, some people just don't heal. Yet, paradoxically, there are patients that do recover from challenges, injuries, diseases, and other ailments that, based on medical evaluation, they should not recover from. So I'm sure you've 
heard now of, you know, the myriad of cases of spontaneous recovery from even extreme forms of cancer and all sorts of things. Um, you know, there's there's probably as many spontaneous recoveries as there are different types of diseases out there. So the question is, what makes the key difference between people in pain? And that is, in my opinion, it's mindset. Yes, there's other factors such as nutrition and the types of therapy that are being used. But in my career, I've seen clearly that even when poor choices are made in therapy with all aspects, even surgery, that if a person has the right mindset, they can pretty much heal from anything. And I actually have books in my library showing incredible healing of all types that the medical system was not possible. So I've also studied it. So let's engage the four types of patients or people here leaning towards the people that go to doctors and therapists, but remembering that all people fit into these categories in one way or another. Our first type is patients that listen listen to their doctors and therapists, do their part, and generally heal quite efficiently. (laughs) Quite frankly, any doctor, therapist, or coach of any type loves that kind of person because they're fun to work with. They take their challenges, uh, you know, like an adult. Um, They usually ask good questions. They listen well. They do their home exercises, stretches, mobilizations, diet changes, lifestyle changes, and the things that are necessary to heal. They learn a lot, and they are usually a great inspiration to a lot of people all around them, as we all can be. Group two is probably the most challenging to work with, and I've had plenty of these. Unfortunately, a fair number of elite athletes fit into this category, and uh, it may be that the pain that creates their challenges when being guided also was the gift that drove them to such intensity and such self-reliance. Group two is patients whose ego is so inflated that they won't listen to anyone, be they doctors or therapists. They don't follow directions. They do what they want to do regardless of instruction and seldom heal. They often end up making themselves much worse, commonly develop addictions as coping mechanisms, and fall into the victim role blaming others for their pain and challenges in life. I've seen this too many times to count in my career, which has been long and included thousands of people as patients. I've watched them make themselves not only worse, but much worse by not listening and continuing to do things that they shouldn't be doing, such as running when they shouldn't run, lifting when they shouldn't lift, staying up late at night when they should be resting, 
and all sorts of things like that. I imagine most of you listening are familiar with this mindset. I've also watched many of them develop addictions to coffee, to pain medications, to recreational drugs, to alcohol, to all sorts of things to cope with their own internal stress and the pain that they don't often consciously realize that they're causing for themselves. I've seen them fall into the victim role, and they often come back blaming doctors and therapists for their pain and their challenges that aren't going away and say that the program's not working and things like that. And being who I am and an ex-paratrooper who's very clear and straightforward and practical and logical, I'm very likely to pin the tail right on the donkey and say, well, how often are you doing your stretches, your mobilizations, your exercises? Have you got the gluten out of your diet? Have you got the sugar out of your diet? Have you followed the plan? Dot, dot, dot. And I usually get a sheepish look or I get a yes, but their whole body is saying no. And I know right away and they forget that I can read people's energy fields. So I not only have a very good lie detector, but I can watch the shifts in their energy field and changes in colors and see the different images that appear and symbols that arise, which usually just inspires me to ask them more focused questions. And some of them will get upset because they don't like to be confronted and they don't like to take responsibility. And they're very addicted to the victim role or sabotaging themselves, which usually means they need deeper therapeutic approaches, which I offer, and some accept and some run. In fact, a lot of them run because part of what's driving them is pain and judgments that they're afraid to look at. So as long as they're afraid to look at it, it always has to be some kind of mechanical problem or some kind of supplement problem or diet problem. And it's always uh, likely to be something external, something not of their own creation. So our first group then is the group that listens to their doctors, therapists, and coaches and responds favorably. The second group is the inflated ego type patient who don't listen to anyone. And inflated ego means that their, um, their sense of self is inflated, um, their sense of their Uh, strength, their speed, their power, their ability to do things. Uh, Those are all typical indicators of inflation. So, you know, blowing up um, like a blow-up doll. Usually, though, the more inflated the ego is, the more uh, soft and tender and scared the child within that individual is. So that's a reminder that the inflation is usually a countermeasure of the pain or fear or insecurity within within the individual. If you listen to my interview with Ben Pakulski, we got into that because professional bodybuilding is, <laughs> is full of inflated egos, um, but so are most sports. Um, if you listen to my podcast with Kyle Kingsbury, um, that goes into the hero's journey and He shares very deeply his challenges at different levels and how he grew. 
So those are a couple of examples of podcasts where we got into things like that. Our third group is an interesting one. Not an easy group to work with. Uh, Certainly not easier than group two, the inflated ego patients. And that's the group of neurotics and hypochondriacs. So let's get into a little clarification. A neurotic is often a sensation-dominant person in their mode of conscious perception, which means that they're overly reliant on what they feel. They're like a ball of nerves, is one way to put it. My experience of neurotics is that they haven't reached a level of maturity that allows them to realize that there's much more to life than the momentary fleeting issues of their personal discomfort or challenges of their relationships with themselves and others. I've observed that they're typically people without well-qualified dreams, goals, or objectives, leaving only their thoughts, feelings, and sensations to captivate them. So what I'm saying here is when I work with neurotics, they're usually, they can be goal-driven, and their neuroticism can be uh, tied to perfectionism in which they're uh, relentlessly pursuing something, even though it's causing tremendous pain and problems within themselves and in their relationships. Now, Joseph Campbell, one of my heroes, uh, most of you, I imagine, know who Joseph Campbell is, defined a neurotic quite interestingly, as someone who acts irresponsibly when they should be acting responsibly. And one of the reasons for that is because the neurotic is almost narcissistic in that they're overly focused on themselves or on issues of themselves. But they're usually people that are constantly Uh, complaining about some problem from a pimple on their face to uh, neck pain or, you know, a lot of little things, but it it consumes them. And, you know, they're hard to be around after a while because the glass is always half empty uh, and they're waiting for the perfect body all the time or the perfect day or the stars to align just right so that their whole life becomes perfect. So, in general, that's what I'm referring to when I use the term neurotic. Hypochondriacs are people that have become so identified or entangled in their ailments that they have become their primary focus. Different than a neurotic in that their pain and problem become their identity. So, A neurotic may still have a sense of self uh, associated with things beyond their body, but in relationship with a neurotic, it's almost always that the conversation goes towards something going on with themselves. But they may still be, you know, very anchored in their role as a mother or a father or their profession. Whereas the hypochondriac, becomes overly identified with their problems. They tend to spend so much time around and with other disabled people that they become like those in groups like AA or um, you know various groups that 
constantly reinforce their dysfunction as opposed as opposed to using it as a basis for deeper learning and personal, professional, or spiritual growth. Now our fourth group, which is the final of the four groups, are patients whose time to leave the earth plane has simply come and no amount of personal desire to live nor therapeutic intervention will save them from dying. And I have also had the sad experience of working with these types of people. Um, I've even had the experience of them uh, being friends of our family. When I was younger, I remember two of my parents' friends were very, very beautiful people, very advanced yogis, both school teachers. And one of them, the husband, I think it was the husband that first got brain cancer, and these people ate very well and lived very well. And there was nothing they could do to save him. And then not long after, his wife died, I think, also of brain cancer or another form of cancer. And so I remember being, you know, 14 or 15 years old, wondering why in the world, how is it that these people are dying? Um, Now, I, of course, had the knowledge of a 15-year-old, but being raised by parents that were very healthy and health-oriented and having been around these people for quite some time, it definitely was a shock that they both left so quickly. And there's been many other cases like that that I've experienced. I've worked with patients myself that, you know, I and many other doctors and therapists working in a multidisciplinary approach were doing everything with, and they were very diligent in their participation, but nothing seemed to uh, slow the progress of their disease whatsoever. Now, it's also interesting that I have had patients in my career on a couple of occasions where I think one of the ladies had cancer. It's been a long time. Um, Another one had a different type of disease or dysfunction. And intuitively, I, I wondered what a medical astrologer might have to say because I'm hip to the forces of the stars or the planetary bodies, and that's another long discussion, which I hope to do a podcast on to bring some clarity to that often confusing topic that's usually blown off as silliness by a lot of left-brain scientific materialist people. But I happen to know a very good medical astrologer who's a Vedic medical astrologer, and I like the Vedic system much better than the Western system in general. And one case I had, this woman just wasn't responding to anything. And so my soul, my inner voice said, talk to Richard, Richard, your your Vedic astrologer friend, and see what he has to say. And so sure enough, I got the uh, medical astrology report, and he described in the language of Vedic astrology that there were forces working very strongly against her that strongly affect health, and that within three months, things should begin to clear up. 
And so I shared the report with her, and it was absolutely astounding because almost to the day, all of a sudden, her symptoms started to go away, her disease started to clear, and in just a few months, she was completely healthy, but she was basically doing exactly the same thing we'd been doing probably for the previous six or eight months in therapy. So there can be astrological forces involved. And and for some of you that don't really understand, well, what the hell does that mean? I'm sure most of you are familiar with the term Mercury in retrograde and know that it's a bad time to buy and sell houses, make business deals, electronic equipment often fails, and all sorts of crazy stuff seems to go on when Mercury is in retrograde due to the forces of Mercury acting on Earth. So there's a simple example. So if the forces of Mercury are enough to completely screw up computers, for example, well, just know that the the energetic systems of your body are operating on much, much more fine-tuned, finely calibrated, and smaller electromagnetic forces by far than most electronic systems. So we are all very susceptible to those forces. <clears throat> and I really look forward to diving into that whole topic. Uh, and I have been talking to my friend, the uh, Vedic astrologer, about doing just that. So keep your ears tuned for that one. Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you've been following my work for any length of time at all, you know how important organic food and organic farming is, not only for the health of the soil and to protect all the little beings in nature from toxic chemicals and throwing nature completely out of balance, which directly affects us, but also for our own health and well-being. We all need nutrient-dense foods for body-mind well-being. And I'm so excited about the Organifi line. Organifi is a product line made of certified organic source materials. And I've checked this out personally. I can guarantee you that. One of my favorites that I've recently tried is their red juice, which has acai and cordyceps infused into it. It's a super, super tasty product, and it revitalizes skin cells, supports your metabolism, has antioxidants in it, age-fighting nutrients, helps mental clarity. It's got a lovely natural sweet flavor. And something that I found really interesting, if you go to Organifi.com and look up the red juice, they show you a price per serving comparison against Palm Wonderful, Red Bull, Gatorade, and a Starbucks latte. And Organifi red juice is actually significantly more cost effective considering not only the price, but the density of the nutrients in it. I think you'll be really amazed with this red juice, along with all their other products. If you go to Organifi.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, and as you're checking out, use the code lowercase c-h-e-k-20 altogether, you will get a 20% discount on your Organifi purchases. I'm super excited to share this company. I've tested their products, my family's tested their products, and we're all behind them, and I know you're going to be satisfied because this is the real deal. This is true nutrition. Check it out. As you check out, C-H-E-K-20 to get your discount. Thanks for joining me. Hope you to continue to enjoy the podcast. And if you love it, share it with as many people as you can.
So now um, let's look at these uh, types of people or patients in a little more depth to see what we can learn from each of these categories and how the pain teacher can be more effectively engaged so that we don't have to keep <laughs> having the same lessons occur over and over and over again in our life. And before I get into this, a thought that occurs to me is that, you know, I, I do a lot of dream analysis in my work. I've studied many different systems of dream analysis. Uh, I lean mostly toward the Jungian approach uh, for a number of reasons, but I do mix several different types. And one of the things that you see in dream analysis is that whenever someone has a reoccurring dream, it's an indication that the soul is bringing something out of the unconscious up into the conscious that they need to be very aware of because it could be very, very important for them to be aware of. It could be um, an issue of life and death in some cases. And there's many, many such cases. In fact, I once was watching a documentary that highlighted interviews with all the people that were supposed to be in the Twin Towers when they went down that morning. And several people, I'm talking 10 or 12 of them that they interviewed, all described very unusual circumstances that emerged that morning that were not normal, that stopped them from getting on trains, buses, airplanes, um, all sorts of stuff. And those types of things were were in many cases dreamlike in that they could have ignored the the inner voice or the call that they were getting, but they didn't, and it ultimately saved their lives. So when we're talking about these groups of patients now, we'll go through them. Um, group one is the people that listen and get well. So the key for all of us is to evaluate to see if, if the issue we're having is reoccurring, like I've just alluded to. If so, look at what you're choosing unconsciously. Arnold Patton says in his Universal Principles, if you don't like ha what's happening in your life, look carefully at what you're choosing unconsciously. And that could be choosing to continue to swing kettlebells with uh, poor form and not realizing it, which can get get you injured quite easily. And I've rehabilitated many people from injuries created by poor kettlebell form, even though they were doing exactly what various certifications taught them to do. In fact, it was a very severe injury that brought the great master of kettlebell training, Mike Salemi, to me. And that pain teacher experience ultimately took him into a two-and-a-half-year journey with me where we really got into the depth of orthopedic rehabilitation, posture, all aspects of posture, static and dynamic, integrating his body, his diet, cleaning inflammatory agents, identifying which foods work for him, how to rest properly. While he was also going through the Czech Advanced Training programs, as well as HLC training uh, and Czech practitioner training, 
which led to him developing the MTK program, Mastering the Kettlebell. So if you want to see a living example of what happens when somebody that really does pay attention and does learn gains from those experiences, Mastering the Kettlebell is a program that is a living example of that. It is normal in our culture to see injury and or the resulting pain as an isolated event when in fact it is often the accumulation of physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual stress that led to fatigue, self-absorption, and lack of awareness. So when we explore my one, two, three, uh, four approach as it applies to the pain teacher, we'll get deeper into these issues. So we will have more on that. But another key tip is to create and carefully consider what your pain tree diagram suggests may be unresolved as yet and can be facilitating unwanted challenges as compensations for what is being overlooked. In other words, you may be a great student. You may be a great patient. You may be a great listener and be very dedicated to doing what your doctors and therapists teach you. But you could have either a long string of niggling injuries or injuries that don't make sense to you and not realize that it's because you're suffering from compensatory stress for something that you don't realize is in the background still causing you trouble. And I can give you a quick example of that. I've worked with many, many elite uh, triathletes, biathletes, um, track and field athletes, uh, American football players, soccer players from all over the world, and a long, long list of athletes that run a lot. And many times when these athletes have come to me, often for things like back pain, neck pain, and various other things, and I analyze their gait, it was very clear to see that they were limping. And when I asked them, do you realize that you're limping? They always said, no, I didn't realize I was limping. Sometimes I film them and show them. And so what I've found in in, in every such case is that there was an, an ankle injury or an Achilles injury or an old plantar fascia injury or a stress fracture in the lower leg foot ankle region as a common but most common cause and people forget that when we're in pain something quite interesting happens pain turns out to be the most powerful reprogramming agent there is for the human central and peripheral nervous system so when people get injured as athletes and they keep trying to train their body immediately begins to alter its movement strategy to try to protect the injury from uh, more damage or debility, disability. And while they're going to rehab, if they get rehab on the injury site, but the therapist does not evaluate them globally and look at things like, is there inner unit working or are the inner unit systems of the major joints working? Do they have food intolerances disrupting the normal interrelationships between the gut 
and the core muscles, for example, if those things are overlooked, then they get palliative care. They get to where the, the, the original injury that, that we're talking about here, be it the ankle, the Achilles, the plantar fascia, the stress fracture, goes away. But they have not been integrated and taught to walk, jog, or run with equal weight and force application on both legs. So the fact that the pain was so strong, it rewrote their gait software to build in a limp is significant. And that software can't be rewritten just by removing the pain. Because usually by the time they get to the therapist, anyhow, they've put, you know, umpteen thousands of repetitions. As a general uh, concept, the average person takes about 750 strides per leg a mile. So if you get an athlete that's running 40, 60, 80, and I've worked with athletes that are running, you know, 120 plus even 140 miles a week, especially back in the late 80s and early 90s when it was kind of common to do that, um, then what happens is they've got you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions. So imagine if somebody's left ankle or foot or leg is is in compensation. So their right leg is striking the ground with 10 pounds more force than their left. Well, if your average person takes 750 strides a mile and they're 10 pounds heavy a leg, that's 7,500 pounds worth of extra work that leg's doing every mile. So that's, uh, you multiply that by uh, 10 miles, that's 75,000. That's 750,000 pounds of extra work on one side of the body every 100 miles of running, which <laughs> for a lot of these athletes doesn't take long to build up to. So it can really put a lot of torsion through the body and induce a, a compensatory scoliosis and trigger off things from head to toe. So that's, uh, you know, a very, very important thing to consider. Now, when we get into the ego-inflated patient, we'll look at some things here that are worth uh, paying attention to, particularly because if you recognize the signs of ego inflation of a, as I've shared them, then these concepts apply to anybody that fits the bill. Or I'm sure a lot of you listening to this go, oh boy, I know so-and-so, he's just like that, or she's just like that. Or hopefully you're at a mature enough level to recognize yourself if it's the case, and you can prevent yourself a lot of unwanted challenges because these challenges are often not just physical challenges. They can be very much emotional or mental or spiritual or relational. Now, often those with inflated egos are typically compensating for a challenging childhood. That I know for sure. Um, I can put myself in that category and... Um, 
I'm sure at times I had an inflated ego. In fact, I know I did because my first kind of wake-up call to my inflated ego was when I was, I think I was 18 or 19. I was racing stock cars and I was very good at it. I set three track records my first year. But one day after a race, my whole pit crew of about eight guys asked to meet with me and they circled me and there's some, they said, there's something we need to tell you. And I said, what's that? And they said, you're just too full of yourself. You, Yes, you're a great driver. Yes, you win a lot of races. Yes, you are in the newspaper a lot. And yes, it's very exciting for us, but the, re- the reality of it is you never mention us. You very seldom say thank you to us and you bark orders at us like some kind of a drill sergeant and expects us to expect us to just jump to your tune and forget that we all contribute to your ability to win that race as much as you do because without us without us you couldn't uh, you wouldn't have a car you wouldn't have uh, anyone to help you and you can't race a stock car by yourself at least not at a high level so it was a real shocker for me and and it it was you know it made me very emotional and I felt very sad because I realized I was hurting people that I love dearly. And so it softened me up a lot and it made uh, me take them more into consideration, their wants, feelings, and needs. And we all got along very well after that. And I felt grateful uh, in the end that they had done that because I didn't realize I was doing that. And so there's an example of my own life where that was a reality. Now, people that have had a number of letdowns by authority figures, be they parents or caretakers, church leaders and influencers, such as school teachers, mentors, bosses, doctors, therapists, to name a few, often lose trust in others and conclude that their way is the best way or the safest way, even when that isn't the case. So, these childhood wounds are very, very real. Um, without going through my whole childhood history, which I've talked about on many podcasts, I talked about a fair bit in my Evolve Yourself 2019 series, I'd just say that there are a lot of people that have these types of wounds that are they're potentially affecting them in ways that debilitate them personally and in relationships and in their careers. But for some excellent learning on childhood attachment wounds, which is what these are, that can trigger these types of ego responses, and how to begin healing and developing a secure attachment in relationships, I highly recommend Diane Poole Heller's audiobook program titled titled, uh, Healing Attachment Wounds. It's an excellent program, and it's far more than I can cover here. I hope to have an interview with her on a podcast. She's an amazing teacher and presenter, and I'm really grateful she's on the planet. So healing your attachment wounds, uh, or I think it's called Healing Attachment Wounds by Diane Poole-Heller. You can get it right on Amazon. It is published by Sounds True. Now, healing can begin when the inflated ego type realizes that 
there may be a pattern emerging, not listening to or trusting doctors, therapists, healers. Um, what happens is your pain will continue to reoccur in general, unless you are fortunate to have a spontaneous recovery. But if you were listening to what I shared earlier, if you don't have a skilled assessment, you may get over the pain, but you may not get rid of the problem because it could be the symptom of something uh, that happened to you prior to you seeking help for the pain you think is the problem. Being more discerning in what, uh, or excuse me, in, in who you choose for help or guidance and committing to be a good listener, student, and doing the work given can result in healing and the realization that we can trust the people helping us, but we need to screen them quite carefully. And um, one of the challenges with medical insurance type systems is that a lot of times you aren't very uh, free to choose who you want to get help from. So you can end up in the hands of some pretty uh, underskilled physicians and doctor or therapists of all types. And that's a real issue I ran into when I owned a physical therapy clinic is that um, a lot of the doctors that wanted to send patients to me because they knew that they had complex cases and needed somebody with my skill level to help them couldn't send them because I wasn't on the um, I wasn't uh, approved by their insurance plan of the patient's insurance plan, and a lot of these people simply either didn't want to spend cash to see me or couldn't afford to. So I do have a lot of empathy for people that probably are aware they need a better doctor or therapist, but can't financially get to one. And if you're in a situation like that and you're just being too cheap to go find a skilled therapist, then it's probably going to end up costing you a lot more. <laughs> than the car you're driving, maybe, or other things. Now, a book that I really recommend, which is uh, the basis of PPS Success Mastery Lesson 12 called Sacred Listening, is a book titled Sacred Listening by Kay Lindahl. That's K-A-Y-L-I-N-D-A-H-L. And sacred listening is is a beautiful skill. And by practicing sacred listening, you're able to get beyond the words people use. So if you're talking to a doctor or a therapist, it could be uh, somebody you might choose. With the practice of sacred listening, you not only listen to their words, but you do things like paying attention to what's happening inside of you, which requires that you do something called splitting your attention, which takes a little practice. And that means you're listening to them, you're making eye contact with them, but you're also listening to what your heart is saying and to what your guts are saying. And you'll find, and I'm sure a lot of you have experienced, a lot of people use the right words, but something inside of you knows there's a deeper issue that needs to be looked into. So you may not buy the car or do the surgical procedure, even though the pitch sounded really good, even logical, because there's an inner voice calling to you saying, this isn't the right path or this isn't the right person to help you. And that's a good example of sacred listening. Now, the inflated ego patient 
um, may, may realize they're wasting a lot of time and money while often deepening a negative self-dialogue based in victim behavior produced by not trusting, listening, or following through. Such a person can be stuck in the saboteur archetype, which is a survival, one of Carolyn Mice's survival archetypes. And the survival archetypes are there so that we each become aware of what it's like to become someone else's prostitute and how painful that can be, what it's like to be uh, the victim of someone else's sabotage, what it's like to be a victim, period, or what it's like to have to be stuck with someone that's acting as an eternal child when they should be um, acting as an adult in relationship. So. Sometimes the um, inflated ego patient is stuck in the saboteur archetype. And having worked with many of these types of people, there's often fear of success that it's usually unconscious. Sometimes it's conscious, but it's usually unconscious. And I have worked even with some of the greatest athletes in the world that had this problem. Um, a specific case I worked with, I won't mention the team or the athlete just to protect identities, but one of the most famous rugby teams in the world hired me to work with an athlete that had a recurring injury that was happening over and over again for three years running. And when I uh, did my counseling work with him and my investigation, ultimately what I found is that he was very, very afraid of all the pressure from the media and from the fans and there was so much expectation on him to perform and to pull off a miracle when the team was losing that he unconsciously began to manifest a recurring injury because it gave him an excuse so that if things didn't go well he could always he could say well it was my my hamstring or whatever you know he needed as a um relief valve for the pressure of, of uh, expectation from people. Now, the other thing is these ego-inflated patients are at great risk of becoming an erotic or a hypochondriac if they keep using the same model of relating to themselves and others. Such people have a common tendency to far overestimate their own level of competence with regard to the issues that led both to the development of their pain and injury and what to do about it, as I alluded to earlier. A lot of deep healing for such people can occur when they realize that if they could heal their own pain, they probably would have by now. So the pain teacher often functions to teach us the importance of relationships in our life and that we can't do anything meaningful alone. And that's one of the key hallmarks of the inflated ego type people is they don't realize that <laughs> no man is an island. Uh, they can't really do anything effective by themselves. And, you know, I tell people that don't get it, you know, that when I'm coaching them or whatever, I say, well, I'll just look at them and say, well, who made your shoes? Who made the gym equipment you use? Who made the track you're running on? Who made uh, your food for you? Um, who feeds you? Your wife, right? dot, dot, dot. So it only takes a few seconds to point out that we're all really 
in love with each other. We need each other. And we're all supporting each other. And every time someone's living their dream and creating things that are products of their love, chances are good that those products are things that we're using. Uh, most of you have, many of you have an iPhone, which you could call a product of Steve Jobs' love. So there's a, a very simple example of coming to realize that we need to work together. And Steve Jobs, based on the documentary and what I know of studying him, would fit into this inflated ego type uh, patient uh, based on the profile that was presented in the documentary and that I've read about in a number of books. The inflated ego people generally have problems with any authority figures, which often comes from things such as domineering parents, teachers, coaches, or other authority figures. They can also develop a uh, rebellious streak of significance, which can be quite a double-edged sword. They may become a rebel with a cause, such as creating freedom from authority figures that are potentially dangerous, or they can become rebellious as an unconscious means of drawing attention to themselves, trying to get the attention they didn't get from their parents. And psychologically, this stems from the archetypal fact that our relationships with our mother become what we expect when we have any experience with another woman, and our relationship with our father becomes the basis of what the child in us expects to experience with all men. Therefore, those with inflated ego profiles are often unconscious that they are not seeing the doctors, therapists, and coaches, and others as they really are, but they're only seeing their own programming about mommy or daddy being projected onto them. So if you have a, a challenging relationship with your father, for example, and maybe dad's abusive or uses condescending or demeaning language or be even beats you up for things that are, you know, maybe out of proportion with the situation, which is not uncommon, then that imprints the child deeply and the child's idea of what a man is and what a woman is is really based on their experience primarily of mother and father because the earlier the imprint the deeper it is in the nervous system and therefore the more it is, is linked by association to all other experiences so painful mother and father experiences ultimately become the basis of painful experiences with men and women in general and a lot of the uh, inflated ego types are suffering from these types of challenges. The good news in regard to this is that the pain teacher will keep showing up <laughs> until real healing is inspired. And the question is always, how much pain will it take to get such a person to take responsibility for their 50% of every relationship by healing themselves so they can be authentically present in the relationship to themselves and others. Then there's, you know, evolution of such people from I to we. Any therapeutic relationship with a doctor, therapist, counselor, etc. is a real relationship in which both parties have a chance to grow together. And the key thing is that there is no I and we. And that's what I realized in my first inflated ego experience when I was racing stock cars, as I shared uh, just a bit ago. 
There can be challenges in relationships with uh, those that are doing their best to help us, but we can shift our focus from what he or she isn't doing or is or isn't doing to the product of the relationship. Um, so let me expand on that. You, you may actually have a therapist or a doctor or uh, someone trying to support you in healing that is challenging to be with. Uh, I've worked with therapists that were, quite frankly, just assholes. And I've worked with them that really are way past their shelf life and don't enjoy their work at all and do minimal work or assessment and basically just become ultrasound technicians or pill uh, salespeople and don't really want to engage people at all and get short-tempered. And if the patient's not healing, they blame the patient and, or doctors say it's all in your head and stuff like that. But at the same time, we can have relationships with challenging people that can be giving us a hell of a lot. And it's up to us to focus on not taking things personally, but focusing on what is being offered in the relationship. Um, and I can give you an example. It was maybe two years ago now. I had a person come to see me that was quite full of themselves and had a degree in spirituality. And, you know, one thing led to another, but I found this person arguing with me about everything, about every stretch and the mechanics of it, the positioning of it, every exercise and why do this and why do that. And, you know, and it just got to be very, very exhausting. And this person really ended up missing out on a lot of potential to heal. And when I did my analysis for the patient, they flat out denied that and, and actually accused me of abusing them when really <laughs> my job is to evaluate somebody. That's like going to a, a mechanic and then accusing them of man, uh, abusing you because your engine's blown and you haven't checked the oil in two years and you ignored the oil light. But if that person would have simply allowed themselves the bravery to listen and let themselves be led by someone who truly has a significant level of expertise and could help them, then they would have had a great growth opportunity. But instead, uh, you know, we could say we mutually ended the relationship and uh, I can only just send my love and blessings to them today. And there has been cases like that in my career. And, and quite frankly, where I've had to grow is is learning to work with people like that, not let them trigger me, um, and try to be more feminine, which is, you know, what I've had to work on because, you know, being a paratrooper, being raised by a father that's just a absolute ball buster and doesn't take any excuses, and and being raised my whole life that way as as a young man and working in you know, very intense and dangerous work environments where you pretty much do what your boss tells you to do, or it could get you killed. Uh, when I work with patients or clients that behave in this kind of inflated ego manner and don't realize that they're the biggest danger to themselves, but they keep on wasting time and energy trying to defend themselves or 
push their ideas on you or tell you that you're wrong about something that they don't know anything about, well, needless to say, I can get a little triggered and become very blunt. <laughs> and, and I've never had a problem uh, filling my schedule. So uh, it's not, it used to be, uh, let's just say, normal for me to fire patients and tell them, when you're ready to listen and pay attention, come back and see me. Until then, I've given you your homework. You can either go do it or you can do what you want. And I have had a number of patients over the years come back, sometimes two weeks later, sometimes two years later, but generally going, I wish I would have listened to you because now they're in much worse situation. So if you had a father that acted like a drill sergeant, a guy like me who's quite set in his ways and firm about what to do and not to do, could trigger off rebelliousness. But if one takes the chance to focus on the relationship and what's being offered and where awareness can be helpful, but not how the message is delivered, in other words, pay attention to what you're being given, not so much how it's being delivered. And if you don't like how it's being delivered, say something like, I'm really needing a little more connection with you, or I'm really needing to feel safe that I can express my opinion in relationship with you because it feels to me like I'm being uh, talked down to or my opinion isn't important. And that's just normal, healthy communication, which is very, very rare in our culture. But the reality of it is, some of my best teachers were the toughest teachers to be around and taught me a lot of things, and I didn't enjoy being around them, but I did learn a lot. In fact, when I was in sports massage therapy school, the guy that owned the school and ran the school and was the primary teacher was an ex-lawyer and uh, had some military background. And, well, quite frankly, he was a dick. And, you know, me being a a guy who had just got out of the military, literally just got out of the A-2nd Airborne Division, went right to sports massage therapy school. Um, I had no fear of a person like that. I, I had no fear of the drill sergeants or any of those people because my father was far greater a, a <laughs> dragon to deal with than anybody I've ever met. So one day, in honor of all the other students, I just pulled this guy aside and said to him, you know, the way you relate to people and the way you teach is so invasive. You're scaring the hell out of people. I can handle it. I've been through a lot worse than you're probably ever going to throw at us in a massage school. But you make people so nervous that they can't even think. And they're so afraid to do something wrong that they literally freeze up. And when it comes time to practice things, they don't even remember what they were supposed to be doing. Now, fortunately, he had a, a, a high level of respect for me um, for various reasons, and it actually worked. He, he really took the message, so he kind of got his race car meeting, uh, like I got my first one, and everybody was really grateful because um, I told him that I had told him that he needed to change because he was making it hard to learn, and I told him, look, do you want to produce a bunch of lousy students? Because if you do, your school won't last long. And so everybody found the newer, softer 
teacher much better. Okay, now moving forward to uh, the neurotics and hypochondriacs and what they can learn from the pain teacher. Neurotics can benefit from the gifts of the pain teacher by realizing that their tendency is to be over-focused or overwhelmed by sensation or input from the five senses, as I was talking about earlier, and or obsessive thinking about their problems, which only adds energy to what they don't want. And it is wise to remember that energy flows where intention goes. And it is, if you listen to my interview with Dean Tara Bordelli from The Sanctuary on Addiction, you might remember that focusing on what we don't want is one of the primary causes of addiction identified by Angeles Arian. If you're interested in addiction, that's a great interview. A Jungian approach to such people would be to pay more attention to one's feeling function of consciousness. And the feeling function is largely based on one's values and the emotions that result from living in accord or against one's own stated or potentially unconscious values. In my experience, both the neurotic and the hypochondriac types are not conscious of their values uh, for the most part resulting in them making decisions unconsciously, which means out of their programming. Um, For example, uh, people doing things that later they don't even themselves know why they did, or saying things, or fighting with people they love while, while they're in it. They're saying to themselves, why am I doing this? But they keep doing it, which is unconscious behavior that only leads to more pain. If this kind of pain is medicated and the impetus to look into oneself to identify what values led to the circumstances that produce such pain, then usually, again and again, it's also going to just end up in palliative care, which means treating symptoms but not getting to the root cause, and healing um, is not going to result in such cases. And these are unfortunately very, very common in all aspects of healing and therapy and coaching and working with doctors, etc. When we use our feeling function of consciousness, um, not when we are feeling our pain, which is the function of sensation, just so we're clear, but when we pay close attention to how we feel inside as we're about to make a decision or do or not do something. So some call this relying on gut instincts. Uh, They don't really use that concept of feeling because most people don't study Jungian psychology. So just to kind of get clear on what I'm referring to, Jung identified that consciousness in a human being has four key functions or modes of action. Thinking is juxtaposed with feeling, just like yin and yang, and sensation is juxtaposed with intuition. So they're complementary opposites. So if uh, just so you know what I'm referring to here when I'm saying feeling, we're not talking about sensation, ouch, that hurt, or my neck hurts. We're talking about what are our values or what are the emotions that we're experiencing. So for someone may have a value of being healthy and fit, and when all of a sudden they're in pain, Yes, they feel the sensation of it, 
But if they realize that they're in pain because they over-exercised and they knew they were doing it, maybe because they were getting too competitive with somebody, their frustration with themselves will be based on trespassing their own value of knowing when to quit instead of pushing through out of some sort of a uh, temporary ego challenge. So we may be relying on gut instincts, which are very closely tied to our feeling um, capacities. A real challenge for people in a society like ours, where the world population is so unhealthy, is that they don't have good access to their instincts because their instincts are inherently tied to the health of their body and their organs at large. So I can give you some examples of that. The instinct to eat is tied to the health of one's stomach and gut at large. For example, someone who's got a stomach parasite or gluten intolerance or something like that could have so much inflammation in their gut that it makes their stomach feel full very quickly. So it disrupts their instincts to eat because they may not actually be able to eat enough without feeling stuffed, without realizing that the inflammation in their gut is triggering the sensation not to eat more, which at the time might be the stomach saying, don't put more food in here. But what I'm pointing out is that their instinct as to when to eat or when to stop eating cannot be fully intact because their um, gut is sending information about the health of the gut or the function of the gut that may be antagonistic to what their instincts are, or they may just not be paying attention to their instincts. And And a good example of how that can play out is this type of person can end up losing a lot of weight, becoming quite unhealthy, but they did not follow their feeling sense that something was wrong until way down the line. In other words, their value of being healthy is being trespassed uh, because they're basically their instincts out of balance. The instinct to love is tied very directly with the health of our heart. Now, there's many things tied to the instinct of love, but I'm giving you an example. Um, People, uh, for example, I've worked with many men, particularly men that have heart disease, and so far, uh, 100% of them have real challenges with uh, love in relationship, usually with spouses. Um, That's where a lot of this comes down to, and co-workers. And many of them have done things to make a lot of money that were very disrespectful and abusive of people working under them. So their instinct to love is is being repressed because their desire to make money or be powerful and control people is so domineering that their instinct to love is being shut down. Our instinct to move is tied to the health of our body as a whole. So if we keep not listening to the pain teacher and getting ourselves healthy when the warning signs are there, then what happens is the instinct to move becomes the instinct to pop another pill or 
the instinct to make excuses about why you shouldn't exercise and things like that. The instinct to rest is tied to the body and the balance of our hormonal system quite closely. Um, For example, when people go into phase one adrenal exhaustion, they typically have high levels of adrenaline and cortisol, which gives them quite a buzz, gives them rosy cheeks. Often they get comments about how good they're looking because one of the effects of high adrenaline is that you get this kind of rosy cheek, bright-eyed look. (laughs) But, But people that are not trained in realizing what they're looking at don't realize that's the look of someone staring into the eyes of a perceptible threat, not the look of health. And someone like me that's seen this a lot of extreme athletes have this look on their face. Um, I know what it means. But if we end up with high cortisol or high and or high adrenaline, which typically comes hand in hand, then we can find ourselves having a very hard time getting to sleep at night and also being very anxious and wound up because that's one of the effects of those hormones. Our instinct to create is tied to our inner genius or our soul nature. So if we're too trapped in our head or in our thinking function of consciousness, or we've been programmed with uh, scientific materialistic ideas that deny things such as a soul or our spiritual core, then one may uh, you know, not listen to their impulse to be creative. Which, remember... Einstein said you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it, which means you have to get out of the box. You have to go outside of your own programming or your own schooling. This is why I often tell my students, I quote Mark Twain, who says, don't let your schooling get in the way of your education. In other words, don't let your programming get in the way of your opportunity to be creative or to learn new things. The instinct for thirst is tied to the whole body as well. Uh, The instinct to void is tied to one's um, consciousness of uh, how their gut is doing. So if you need to go poop or pee, but you keep sitting at your computer and putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, then after a while you will repress the natural information coming from your body, your colon or your bladder, and the next thing you know, you can end up with infections in the bladder or uh, chronic constipation or all sorts of, you know, unhealthy things such as parasite infections. Then there's the instinct to avoid, such as avoiding situations or people that could be dangerous or debilitating or unhealthy. And that is tied to one's conscious awareness of what they do not know relative to what is present in any given environment or situation. So if a person's overly inflated in their ego or their um, neurotic or hypochondriac, they may be uh, too tied up in their conscious mind to realize that what they don't know should be what's guiding them to avoid a key situation. Um, You see this uh, lack of 
listening to the instinct to avoid, particularly in teenagers, especially males, when their testosterone levels jump up through the roof and they drive way beyond their skill level or they try to do things with power tools or you know any number of ways to get themselves badly hurt or killed. And sometimes they do get killed. Um, I remember somebody that I grew up with got a hold of his dad's Corvette when his dad was out of town. And unfortunately, the tree that he wrapped the car around is still there. He was going so fast with a buddy of his, and they were drunk. And if I remember right, they were doing cocaine. And he hit a tree because he missed a corner and hit that tree so hard it split the car right in two. The front half of the car with the engine was about 40 or 50 feet from the tree on one side and the back half with the seats and the rest of the car was on the other half and um, there was two dead people involved. I also have a friend that uh, was a motorcycle racer and an avid bodybuilder and had an ego the size of a football stadium that took his girlfriend out and started showing off, lost control of his motorcycle, and she went sliding down the pavement road at about 70 miles an hour and basically got, well, the grand majority of her body skinned off, got her nipples skinned right off and the whole front side of her body, and she was a very beautiful girl. And so I wouldn't doubt if to this very day he carries the pain of not listening to the instinct to avoid driving beyond his skill level with somebody that he loved on the back of his motorcycle. When we lose our instincts due to poor self-care, quite frankly, we just invite the pain teacher. And that's one of the key lessons I'm trying to share here is that when the pain teacher comes, it's almost always a very good time to pay attention. I as most of you know, like to do a lot of work with stones. I make quite large uh, stone sculptures or stone stacks and various other types of thing out of stone. And I've been hurt many times. In fact, badly hurt. Um, I'm, I'm probably, by the grace of God, still alive. Now, every time I've hurt myself, Almost without exception, it was because I was rushing. I was trying to finish something in order to get to some kind of an appointment with a client or get home to my kids or whatever it might be. But there's no excuse. And the stone Buddhas are very, very honest teachers. They, they're very present with you. And when you're not present with them, then you get to experience the force of their gravity. So I have a rule, never rush in a rock garden. And as we age, we learn that the whole planet is a rock garden and relationships are rock gardens, business deals are rock gardens, and on it goes. And when we're young, we tend to rush. Um, you know, I tell the young athletes, don't be young, dumb, and full of cum because that's how you get yourself hurt and potentially ruin your career. So these are very, very real issues. And I've 
certainly had to learn the hard way myself, which is why I'm very confident talking about these things, because I've had the trail of tears. I've been covered in blood, woken up in hospitals many times, not knew how I got there, internal bleeding, many broken bones, many concussions. But Great Spirit must have wanted me to be here today to share with you, because here I am, and the wiser for it. Now, the fourth function of consciousness is intuition, but intuition cannot be used if we're trapped in a sensory-dominant experience, which the neurotic and hypochondriac often is, and this orientation grounds us to the physical body and the realm of the pain itself, but you, again, can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it. So this is very, very important. Uh, because intuition is the doorway to great revelation in my experience, and my intuition has guided me through a lot of minefields, but you have to learn to get still. And in the Jungian system, and in practical experience, you'll find this to be true, thinking is antagonistic to intuition because the mind is like a garbage disposal. When you think, if you take a carrot and throw it into a garbage disposal, what comes out the other end is thousands of pieces of carrot. And this is necessary because the thinking process produces a linear process or a rational stream of thinking. But intuition doesn't function that way. Intuition deals in holes. Uh, you know, so it gives you a whole picture which means that we have to suspend the analyzing, judging mind or intuition cannot get through the garbage disposal of the mind that chops everything up and we end up um, missing out on the support of the universe. If you study the mind and you look at people like Larry Dossie's book, One Mind, or Dean Radin's work, or uh, let's see... Um, Dr. Daniel Siegel's work, and many, many great thinkers' work, there's mountains of great evidence that our mind is really just part of a larger mind, which can be a collective of people. It can be the uh, social mind of uh, a society or a culture. Um, it can be the world mind. It can be the universal mind. But intuition is essentially part of our capacity to ask a question, charge it with emotion, i.e. let the universe know we really do want the answer, and then be patient enough to wait for it to come. So hypochondriacs can shift their identity and conscious off the pain and focus on what they do have in their life. And gratitude is great medicine for all of us. And sometimes gratitude, and as I often tell my patients, if you can breathe, if you have a roof over your head, you have warmth in your body and can get warm, you got access to food, you got access to water, and there's people that love you, then there's not really any problem that's that serious because if your survival needs are met and your core safety needs are met and you're in pain, then obsessing about the pain and going into poor me syndrome only stops you 
from being grateful for what you have and being capable of going into an open receptive mode, which is what intuition requires to function at its um, optimum. Neurotics and hypochondriacs can cultivate relation people that have overcome what they're going through and gain inspiration and wisdom from them. And chances are very good there's a lot of people that have overcome whatever any of us is going through because there's almost 7 billion human beings on the planet. So the numbers of people (laughs) that are getting beat up and broken from all the things we're talking about here is pretty high. And fortunately, the number of people that do listen and do grow from these things um, is such that there's enough of them that we can find access to them. It's not hard to find somebody that's effectively recover from back pain, from a divorce, from various surgical procedures or diseases. So if we find someone that has recovered, it can give us an access to gain the wisdom that those people carry, but it also breaks down the impossibility wall that we often create in our minds when we keep getting too much negative information from health and medical professionals, such as, uh, you're going to die in X number of months. These kinds of things don't heal and stuff like that. Um, That's, you know, I'm sure they are often intending to be at their best. Uh, In other words, they're saying what they've been taught to say, but many of these people haven't gone deep enough into themselves to realize what's really possible. And human beings are capable of very many miraculous things. So, In my experience of working with neurotics and hypochondriacs, a lot of them just don't have a dream for themselves, especially a dream that's bigger than their pain. I love Jerry Wesh's quote, if you have a big enough dream, you don't need a crisis. Now, my PPS Success Mastery Lessons 1, 2, and 3 have been very helpful for many such people. For those of you not familiar, PPS stands for Personal Professional Spiritual Success Mastery. And there are 12 lessons based on the most common roadblocks or obstacles to people living their dream or dreams or meeting their goals and objectives that I saw repeatedly in my career, which led me to make a lesson on each one of them. You can see them at ppssuccess.com or within the Czech Institute website. Hypochondriacs typically make excuses about why they can't do different things or things with others that are outside the box of their typical habitual behaviors. But if they look for the things that they can do and engage new healthy activities with others that are not wounded or hypochondriacs, they can develop a rejuvenated sense of self and be inspired by others to reach into themselves to learn and grow. In my experience, spending time with children and people with Um, much greater challenges than the ones they're going through can be very awakening. The kids teach us how to live without so much judgment and to be more spontaneous. And those in much tougher situations than ours give us a chance to practice empathy and compassion, which can be extended to having more empathy and compassion for ourselves and realizing that relatively speaking, our challenges aren't too bad. And when you just look at documentaries on people and what they've done. I mean, I've, I once swam the Chesapeake Bay 
which is 4.7 miles. And it was a tough swim and there was a lot of um, tidal current and a lot of choppy seas. And it was a tough swim, period. One of the toughest athletic events I've ever done in my life. But it got a lot easier when I saw a guy show up that had no legs. And (laughs) unfortunately for me, that guy kicked my ass out there. Um, So that inspired me to keep going. And uh, I remember seeing a documentary about a guy whose son is very disabled. And he's done multiple Ironmans, full-length Ironmans, towing his, his son behind him. So when we look at what humans are capable of, a lot of people that are caught in this hypochondriac behavior can become inspired uh, to really grow and to learn and to seek the support of others that help us see outside of the box. And being with children is, is really an amazing thing. I'm 58 and I have a three and a half year old and a a seven-week-old right now, and a 40-year-old. And my three-and-a-half-year-old boy, Mana, is uh, such a powerful teacher for me. I mean, this kid has infinite amounts of energy. He's highly creative. And I just watch him play and the stuff that he thinks of. I mean, I look at I'm a pretty good guy with mechanics and stuff like that. And this kid does some crazy stuff. And I'm like, man, I would have never thought of that. And I can give you a simple example of the power of being with a kid. When Mana was two, probably around two, not older than two, he used to love to get in my car. And he always wants to, you know, (laughs) turn on everything and push all the buttons. Well, one of the first times that he got in my car and I let him kind of play around I, I was, I think Angie or somebody called me and I my, drew my attention to them. But the next thing you know, I look, I turned back and there was a drawer sticking out of my dashboard. And I went, what in the world is that? And I had no idea this secret little drawer was there. It's like a drawer you could put joints in or coins in or jewelry or something like that. But I'd been driving this car since 2007 and never knew that drawer was there. But he found that thing within one minute and thought it was the greatest thing. It was a little push button drawer, but it looked like it was just part of the dashboard. Well, there you go. If you spend time with kids, they'll teach you all sorts of things if you just get out of the way and let them guide you. (laughs) And so I've learned to not get so irritated at his antics and instead say, what's the lesson that my son's bringing me today? Now, one of the most challenging of all is the patients whose time it has come to leave the earth plane or to die. And, And so There's a few things I'd like to share about these people because they've always been interesting challenges for me. And I'm a guy that really likes to solve a good riddle and puts my heart and soul into helping people with complex challenges. I've always found the more complex the case, the more interesting it was for me, especially after about 15 years in clinical practice. I was tired of the standard run-of-the-mill patient with this 
you know, another rotator cuff, another back injury, whatever. I've seen it all. But when people came with mysterious things, I got real interested. So in this case, the pain teacher comes to teach these people about bringing healthy closure to their life. That is one thing. From a different perspective, from a spiritual perspective, they may have chosen to acquire the disease to help others in their family learn how to love more fully. Now, some of you may not be oriented to this sort of spiritual way of looking at things, and that's okay. I've have learned to orient myself to it because I've been in so much pain that I had no way to go but in. And in turns out to be up and up, i.e. higher consciousness and out beyond what your ego can register. And I've seen this, for example, in many instances where children acquire a disease. But when I look at the effect that it has on the family and using other skills that I have that I won't get into right now because it's not the focus of this podcast, it becomes clear to me that the child came in, and often these are much more advanced souls than people realize, but the child came in specifically in a soul contract with the family and people that love that child to teach them, A, how to love better, and B, how to die better. So these are real things. The pain teacher is all about realizing that we are far less physical beings than we are energetic beings. We're essentially all individual streams of energy and information experienced within a collective or a grand tapestry, uh, tapestry of life. And that most of what we think of as our body is the condensation of light and consciousness. So most people don't really study physics or quantum physics or metaphysics or spirituality or any of the things that help grow beyond the scientific materialist view. So they really think all they are is just their body, which makes death very scary. And even serious illness is very scary for them beyond what it would be if they had a spiritual grounding. But when we realize that birth and death are essentially names for two halves of a circle, which is the circle of life or wholeness, and that what we referred to as death is actually a birthing process, and that we and what we call birth is actually a death for us um, in the realm or higher dimensional realm that we just left. So when we're birthing into the physical reality, we're actually having just gone through a death in the higher dimensional reality that would be the afterlife. And a lot of the angst over the possibility of dying can be alleviated when you realize that what we call birth is really the product of a death in another dimension, and that what we call death here is actually the beginning of a birth process into the afterlife or extrasensory dimensions of reality. Then there's the issue of we and death. When people are facing death, it's a time of deep opening for their loved ones. And how a dying person's loved ones handle death is a very big influence on how they feel about it themselves and how they progress uh, or process the experience themselves. So these are very, very real things. So we've now talked about how the pain teacher 
can be supportive for those people with healthy egos that are good patients and good students. We've talked about how the pain teacher can help people with the inflated ego. We've talked about how they can the pain teacher can be a supportive experience for neurotics and hypochondriacs and for the people that um, it's their time and there's nothing we can do about it. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check. In the next episode, Paul will talk about the growth potential and benefits that pain can bring us when we engage it consciously. He will also discuss how our experience of pain is related to the structure of our brain and how our views and personal challenges change us as we grow in consciousness and conscious awareness. You can follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's new streaming channel, Chekiva.com. Music